Welcome back to Crow and Fern's Guide to Weird Fiction, Folklore, Mythology, and Everything in Between, where I, Crow, or, <laughs> You're Fern. did it again. You forgot it <laughs> Where I, Fern, talk about mythology and folklore, and Crow talks about weird fiction. So I'm here, and Crow is too. Say hi, Crow. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for that, Crow. <laughs> We just had Welcome. to wait for a couple of minutes for it was quiet enough on Crow's end for her to be able to say hi. <laughs> yes. Hello. Today is a folklore episode, just like all of them are until Crow's exam is over. <laughs> yes. It's this week. Hold on to your pantaloons, everyone. I'll traumatize you right after. Yeah, that's good. That's what we need. Yes. This week, we have one that I am almost certain is going to be a two-parter. We're going deep into Romanian folklore. I have something special. I posted a little teaser on Twitter and Instagram. We're going to do a very important story, Fatfrimos din Lacrima, which I will translate after the music. <laughs> music! Okay, so Fatfrimos din Lacrima is a story written by Mihai Eminescu, who was a folklorist in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s. Can I make a guess about it? Yes. It has to do with tears. You got it. Yeah, yes. did you hear the Lacrima? Yes, I did. Is that is it similar in Arabic? No, I was thinking of Lacrimosa by Mozart. Oh. Yes. Very fancy. Good Same guess. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. It is. Fatfrumos is a Romanian folklore staple. The name means beautiful youth, basically. And it's kind of the equivalent of a Prince Charming. In fact, it's often translated as Prince Charming. If not, they just keep it as Fatfrumos because you don't want to just be like, and the beautiful youth said this, and the beautiful youth said that. There are many, many different stories with Fatfrumos, but they're not meant to all be the same dude. They're all different dudes who happen to have the same name, which is basically the equivalent of Prince Charming. <laughs> yes. A story about hot dudes. That's what I need right before my exam. Then you're in luck because there are a lot of hot dudes in this story. <laughs> He's going to picture them all as Henry Cavill in different wigs. Well, Fotfrumos, especially in this one, is blonde. But yeah, it's funny because they're not the same person. They kind of refer to them as a, a type. And so you might hear people say like, he's like a Fotfrumos. Like, he's like a Prince Charming would be kind of the equivalent. And this is Mihai Eminescu, the person who is considered Romania's biggest poet, most important poet, and probably one of the most important writers period. There are people who dedicate their entire professional academic career who become like Eminescu scholars. Oh. He is a big fucking deal in Romania. And so before we get into the actual story, I want to tell you a little bit about him. We did mention him when I did the Harapalb episode because he was a contemporary of Jon Kranga who wrote the Harapalb story. And they were both kind of involved in the same literary circles. You know, we talked about the kind of bohemian philosophical approach that both of them had to life and how they would, you know, like talk at bars or whatever about the meaning of folklore and Romanian culture and you know mm. all sorts of things it, it was it was a whole thing 
Mihaya Minescu was born in 1850, possibly 1849. Mm. Records are a little unclear. He was born in what was at the time the Kingdom of Moldova, which has since been broken up into the country of Moldova. A part of it went to Ukraine, and a big chunk of it went to kind of that northern, west, northeast. Wait, which way is which? <laughs> Don't northeastern ask part. Me. Don't I even my look directions at me. for a second. <laughs> the the northeastern part of Romania. <laughs> And he was born in the part that is currently in Romania. He was born in a city called Botoshan. He was originally named Mihai Aminovich. But when he started publishing more of his works, his editor was like, well, let's change your name to something more Romanian sounding and less Slavic sounding. Because, you know, politics at the time, he was definitely writing some political things. You know, he had one really famous paper, for example, that was about what it's like to be a Romanian in... Austria because his family had ties to Austria. Yeah. And so they were like, you should be writing under a Romanian name and that each at the end sounds very Slavic. So they switched his name to Escu. Okay. Because that Escu is a very traditional Romanian ending. Okay. He worked a lot in theater, but not as an actor or anything. He was a he was a clerk, he was a prompter, he also did a lot of translating. Just as a fun side note, he's on money. <laughs> right now. He's on the 500 lei banknote, which I believe is the biggest one that is issued. Ooh. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) I love actually that Romania does this because instead of like politicians, some of which who are very questionable, you get like artists and inventors on Romanian money. And you know, it's not to say none of them are questionable. I like it better than the politician angle. Yes. Oh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ooh. Ooh, what? Dude was good looking. There's one picture of him that is used for almost everything. It was taken when he was like 19. Oh, come on. Please tell me it's not the one where I called him good looking. I I wouldn't go for a 19-year-old either. But anyway, he was writing prolifically. He was one of those very creative types who who always sees everything through an artistic lens. And he just was constantly putting pen to paper. His volume of works is so big that it's hard to get a comprehensive list. I know there's a website in Romanian, not in English, unfortunately, that is attempting to compile everything. But there are still things that they have listed it is lost media, if you will. <laughs> he helped form one literary circle, then he went off to join another literary circle. He wrote poetry, he wrote prose. I did hop on Amazon real quick and check to see what I could find of his works in English, and there are translations. The issue is that some of his most beloved works are poetry, and poetry, I feel like, struggles in a way that other writings don't in translation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They still had good, like, decent reviews and stuff like that, so I think if you're interested in his works, you, you can find a book on Amazon. I would definitely read the comments to see what they say about the translation. Yeah, yeah. He is a very talented writer. He's a fascinating human being. He's not a perfect human being. We'll get into that. Very interesting man. He did write many important political things. Most of his notable editorial pieces belong to this period in like the 1870s when Romania was fighting the Ottoman Empire in the Russo-Turkish Wars, like 1870 to 78. He had quite a lot to say about that. And his political pieces at the time were 
were pretty powerful. Not surprisingly, he was against Turkish influence in uh, Romania. <laughs> As were a lot of countries against Turkish influence in their general area. Right. Two-thirds of modern Romania, like two of the king three kingdoms that make up modern Romania were at the time colonies to Turkey. The other one was a colony to Hungary. Oh. So all, all of what is modern day Romania was under colonization at this time. Okay. And okay. so obviously they had feelings about that. They wanted liberty from the the Turks, the Ottomans. He did write a great deal about that. In the 1880s, he started to struggle with his health. And there have been a lot of debates about what he was actually struggling with, largely because the records are old and the doctors that were treating him were not good doctors. And I hate to say that, but modern day Romanian doctors have written extensively about what a shit job these past doctors did with Mihai. He ended up basically having a nervous breakdown in 1886, and he was diagnosed with syphilis in Romania in Yamps. He did get some of his treatment in other places in like Austria and Italy, and when he was treated in Austria and Italy, he got back up on his feet. This 1886 breakdown, though, was really the beginning of the end. He was treated in a monastery with mercury. He ended up being kept in a cell because they're like, he's not well enough to be outside. So what they said they were treating him for was syphilis with kind of like a madness that was brought on by too much drinking. And I, I don't doubt that he had a drinking issue, but I think his biggest issue was a mercury issue. I think we've all heard the term mad as a hatter. Yeah. And that comes from the people who used to make hats. Back in the day, mercury was part of the hat making process. So they were constantly exposed to mercury and it would lead to, well, first of all, huge health issues that often killed them. But also there was a mental degradation that happened as well. And it really led to them becoming insane, basically. And that, that is why we use the term mad as a hatter. He was definitely starting yeah. to suffer mercury poisoning symptoms. The doctors at the time did not recognize this, but Romanian doctors now have written extensively about this. And what they say is that he exhibited signs of some sort of mental illness. How much of that was mercury and how much of that was just him is hard to say. Because again, records from over a hundred years ago are very difficult just to work with in general. They don't, they didn't see things the same way. So they didn't always record everything that we would want to know today. Yep. Basically, it's hard to diagnose from old records. Sometimes you kind of can. But what they said is there were marked signs of mercury poisoning that continued to get worse and worse and worse as he was kept in this tiny cell. It really sounds pretty cruel, actually. Yeah. The interesting thing is no physical conditions were noted that should have killed him. And modern day tests have been done that have definitively proven that he did not, in fact, have syphilis at all. So that was a misdiagnosis from the start. Mm -hmm. And it seems like his ultimate cause of death, based on modern day interpretations of what we do know, is cardiorespiratory arrest due to mercury poisoning. Okay. Is, that, okay. is mercury poisoning something you've studied for your exam, Crow? No, 
I studied carbon monoxide poisoning and lead poisoning, morphine too, but not mercury. I don't think a lot of people get mercury poisoning nowadays. Yeah, we've recognized its danger for a while now, and people take great measures to avoid exposing themselves to mercury. So I think it's more that we're cautious in a way that we used to not be. They used to just straight up give people mercury as a medicine, and we now know that that is highly counterproductive, as it will probably kill you. <laughs> and and it's, it's miserable. You kind of start to lose motor control. You get tremors. It's called the, the Hatter's Shakes. You get speech problems, emotional instability, and hallucinations. Like, that's just kind of the short list, but it, it gets really bad. Yeah. Anyway, like to, to move on, I do want to say something. He was not a perfect person. Like I said, there were some issues that he wrote about that I think should stay in the past. The biggest of which being his anti-Semitism. He did absolutely have issues with that. And he wrote some vile things. And I don't think there's any place for those writings in the modern world. I, I think we can hold on to the things that he did that add to the world, and then we need to like not <laughs> hold on to these ones. It was a common viewpoint in Europe in the time, the anti-Semitism. But that doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it right. And, and I don't think we should shy away from, from outright calling out and saying, like, he had this toxic viewpoint that we do need to call out, I think. We do need to recognize that it was there, it was an issue, and not to try to excuse it in any way, but just to say that it was wrong, but also to acknowledge the yeah. time frame in which he lived and how there really weren't people there helping him to understand better. Yeah, It's always difficult with these old ones because you know there's going to be something in their closet where you're like, oh, that's not good. And this is his. Yeah. This is his really bad one that we are going to acknowledge and say, like, I wish he'd done better, but he didn't. Yeah. And we are going to acknowledge that, but also acknowledge that some of his other contributions were important. And so I wanted to say that because I don't think we should gloss over the dark points in history and we should acknowledge them so we yeah, can try yeah. and do better. And I think in this point, that's one place where in his history we have to do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Let's get into the story, Fatfrumos din Lacrima, Fatfrumos of the Tear, and I'll explain why the name is that, because it's kind of an unusual name if you don't know the story, but it's it's a very interesting one, and Mihai Amenescu was very big on culture, he was very big on trying to keep tradition and folklore and cultural identity together. When he wrote, like, he and his buddies played a big role in preserving what was already out there, especially like Yonkra was a really great collector of folklore who wrote things down and helped preserve it. But both of them wrote their own material as well. When Eminescu wrote folklore, he did so in a way that incorporated many, many old beliefs, many things that he considered important to Romanian identity that he didn't want to get lost. And you can see that in what he writes. And so when I tell this story, and one of the things that I really do love about this story is that it has so many things that I would consider important staples of Romanian folklore. 
And it also incorporates many things that were really important to tradition that he wanted to keep alive. And that, well, fascinating and beautiful, and I, I love that part of it. It also makes for a lot of research to really talk about correctly, because some of the yeah. things he wrote about don't exist anymore. And, and sometimes they even use words that we still use, but in a different way now. So I had to kind of sort out what some of these things meant during his time and that was not the easiest thing in the world but we'll we'll get to them when we get there this one i think is a classic romanian folklore tale and it incorporates historical and traditional aspects beautifully okay so he, this was first published in 1870 he was 20 years old at the time by the way and then it was mm -hmm. republished in 1890 in a posthumous publication because he died in 1889. Uh, so he was not old. Okay. He was 39. All right. It's not too surprising considering this was in the 1800s and everyone died in their 20s. He's old. Well, he was 39. Because of what happened to him. Yeah, because like if you take mercury, you're going to die faster. So let's get into the story. Once upon a time, there lived a dark emperor as thoughtful as the night married to an empress as bright and smiling as the sun. 50 years ago, so context clues this this is a boomer the emperor is a boomer <laughs> fyi <laughs> definitely an older guy you kind of get the impression he's like an old crotchety get off my lawn type rather than the kind loving grandpa type <laughs> but 50 years ago he got into a fight with one of his neighboring kings they still had an ongoing rivalry to that day the rival king had died a long time ago but he left his hatred alive in the hearts of his children and grandchildren. And this old man, the emperor we're talking about, didn't have children or grandchildren. And so in his old age, he's thinking, how do I pass on my hatred of this old emperor? Like, who do I gift the gift of hate to? <laughs> and who was it? Well, who did he gift his gift of hate to? He's aging and miserable. And they, he describes him as dying like a lion whose strongest fights were behind him, unable to take joy in any of the people around him, including his cheery, bright, and beautiful young wife. And that's the kind of the part that I don't like, is like, there's a huge age gap here. To no one's shock or terror. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell that this is not a good relationship because she is like this warm, bubbly person and he is dark and morose and he thinks everyone is out to get him. He's grumpy. These old fairy tales don't shy away from anything. It actually does say like, you know, he'd get out of bed and leave his wife untouched. And so that was not happening. <laughs> and, and you know, he's a man of a certain age, so I guess we can't be shocked. Honestly, I'm kind of relieved. Yeah, honestly, it is kind of a relief. But it's starting to have an effect on his young wife, who is really struggling to just be in this constantly depressing environment, to not really have, like, someone who understands her or who seems to love her. She's this really beautiful woman with long, flowing golden hair and, you know, just the flower of youth in her cheeks, so to speak. And she is starting to feel depressed and she's starting to struggle. And so one day after he leaves, she gets out of bed and she's feeling particularly bad, you know, because she's married the sort of man who goes out and glares in children's and yells at squirrels rather than someone who will enjoy life with her. 
And brace yourself for this weird moment of Christian Orthodox literature here. I'm braced. So she approaches this icon of Mother Mary. Anyone who is unfamiliar with it in Orthodox Christianity in, you know, kind of like that quote unquote Byzantine area, you have what are called Mm -hmm. icons, which are paintings of, you know, Mother Mary, Jesus, the saints, and people will pray to them. They'll stand in front of them. They'll cross them. A lot of times people will kiss the icons. It is very common to have one in the home. And of course, in a palace, they, I'm sure they had as many as they wanted. But she goes to this one of uh, Micah Domnului, the Mother Mary, and she falls down at yes. it. And she starts to pray because she's miserable. Nothing is going the way she wants. And she, she lets out this really heartfelt prayer. And... Mm. The icon of Mother Mary is so moved that a single tear wells up at the painting's eye and runs down its cheek. The empress uh, kisses the painting, which again, that is something you do do with icons. That happens all the time. It's, It's part of the process, so to speak. And when her dry lips touched that wet tear, the essence of it went straight into her soul and she immediately became pregnant. So apparently immaculate conception is contagious because she just caught it from Mother Mary. I was just going to say that. I was like, bro. <laughs> she, she caught immaculate conception from the Virgin Mary. <laughs> I actually, I mean, like, call me a dweeb, mm-hmm. okay? Call me the biggest dweeb ever. But I actually like those kinds of spiritual things. Mm -hmm. People look at the religious aspect of it and then they immediately cringe away and they're like, oh, you know, like that's so stupid and whatever. But a lot of us know this feeling where you feel like there's a lot of sadness in you or there's a lot of hurt and you don't know how to express it. Because no matter how many people you rant to, they just don't understand. And even if they did understand, they can't help you. Uh So sometimes, to some people, you need this idea that there's a greater power that will be able to reach out and help you. And so when you get parts of stories like this that reflect that, Uh that's something that hits different (laughs) to me. So I don't think it's silly. I like it. Yeah, I I don't think it's silly that people feel the need to pray when they're in a difficult time. Yeah. Not at all. I I totally understand and respect that. It's the whole, like, she kissed the tear and became pregnant. Yeah, That that to me is a little... I got pregnant. But I don't know. Like, I'm not a doctor. I don't understand the science of immaculate conception. (laughs) Crow, you are the doctor. How does that work? Tell me about it. What's... Listen... (laughs) Listen, if I get a case of immaculate conception in the plab, I'm walking out. (laughs) Putting it out there. Obviously, this is a fairy tale and not a real story. But what really comes to mind in a, you know, in a situation like this is the empress is lonely and stepping out. Yes, yes. But if you have a situation where you have someone as important as an empress, you're not going to call them out for cheating because that could come back to bite you in the ass real quick. So what do you do then? You have an immaculate conception because her husband is too old to be like hitting it and 
she's pregnant somehow. (laughs) So it becomes immaculate conception. Anyway, enough about that. Although I did think it was very interesting. Nine months later, she gives birth to this handsome baby boy with hair just as golden as hers. And because of the way he was born, she called him Fafrumos din lacrima, Fafrumos of the tear, because he had been conceived when she kissed the tear on the icon. He grew very quickly. He was strong. He was able. When he was old enough, he had this weapon made for him. This is a very traditional weapon called um, Buzdugan, and it's considered like a type of mace. I'm describing it because this is very important to like Romanian culture and this was something that uh, Mihai Eminescu was preserving. It's made of hardwood traditionally and traditionally it has like a hardwood ball at the top with metal spikes poking out of it. A lot of times those spikes would be iron but it became one of those things where most people didn't have it, just the important people did, and so it became a sign of leadership and importance. And then as time went on, it became even more important, and people started decorating them, and you know, you get ones that are made out of pure gold and silver, and you know, incredibly well decorated, and it kind of started to enter into ceremonies, and it became basically the equivalent of a king's scepter at one point, except for because it's pokey, you can't like lean on it during boring ceremonies, but you know, still. Good enough. <laughs> so he had this buzdagan made and he threw it up into the air and it went so high it split the sky. And when it came back down, he caught it with his one single finger. And you know, he's so powerful here that as soon as the buzdagan hit his finger, it split, it broke. <laughs> and so he's like, obviously I need a new one. So he went and he had a new one made for him. This one was stronger, it was better, it was more powerful. and he was like let me try it out again so he tossed it up into the sky and this time it cut the clouds it broke the clouds in half up in the castle where the moon lived because in this bit of folklore the moon lives in a castle in the clouds which makes sense like if you watch the moon it goes across the sky and passes through the clouds and then when it came back town he once again caught it on a single finger but this buzdugan this mace was strong enough to survive the experience and so he's like yes this one this is my buzdugan we're gonna take it we're gonna use it and we're gonna fight with it so he took his fancy little buzdugan I don't know why I keep saying it. (laughs) He basically took it and decided that he was ready. You know, he's got a weapon that will stick with him. He's ready to go out into the world and face it. So he gets out there. He leaves home. And he's like, I'm going to go deal with my father's enemies. I'm going to go deal with those neighbors that he keeps arguing with and, you know, had war okay. with. And so he starts out. He starts on his epic journey, right? This is this is the epic journey of Frumos din Lacrima. He dresses himself in a disguise, like, kind of like a shepherd. You know, he wears a shepherd's coat, which is a very specific thing, by the way. But he wears a shepherd's coat. He dresses with one of those typical folksy hats. He has a silk shirt sewed from his mother's tears. Uh, Don't ask me how that works. I'm not a master of textiles. Actually, actually, that's very ignorant of you because in that one episode of Spongebob, he made a sweater out of his tears for Squidward. How? He just did. I want the science. You do not believe in a magical world. I do. I just think like there's also science in the world and this is bullshit, not science. (laughs) I actually don't really have a good argument. I just like Spongebob. I know you don't. I know you don't, but you're going to keep on arguing because you you're not me ready for to it. be wrong. <laughs> I do not love you, that. but 
Okay. You're wrong. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, he, he does that. He takes two flutes, one of which is used to play like sad melodies and another of which is used, He it's called like the Hora flute. This is based on like a real tradition because back in the day on Sunday afternoons, there was something called a Hora which was basically like the whole village would get together. People would play music, they would chat, they would flirt, they would catch up and play games, but probably most importantly, they would dance. And there was a dance called the Hora. There were many, many dances that were performed during this time. And these flutes would be part of that tradition of making music and dancing and getting together as an entire village to socialize, basically. Okay. And yeah, and just in case anyone is wondering, there has been a huge effort to preserve these traditional songs and dances. And a lot of them have been recorded and put on YouTube these days because... So if you're curious about what it looks like, you can look up a Hora dance on YouTube. I did double check just to make sure that that specific one is on there, and it is. So one of his flutes was that. So basically, he's got a flute for the bad times and a flute for the good times. <laughs> one that plays sad music, a one that plays happy okay. music. It's like, you know, it's good enough before Spotify was invented. Before Spotify, there was only so much you could do. Yes. What are you going to do before Spotify? Pandora? No, I was thinking of merely getting a bard to follow me around. That's fair. Bard. <laughs> that would be expensive pretty fast, though. Play the Attack on Titan theme song. I can't. Well, you're not. What are you wanting me to play it with? You're not a bard, so. <laughs> anyway, he's dressed as a shepherd, incognito mode activated. <laughs> <laughs> And he's walking along. As he walks, he plays his flute. And as he plays his flute, he, he does this fun little game for him where he takes his buzdugan, his mace, and he throws it up into the sky and washes it glimmering high up in the sky because he's thrown it so far, it takes forever for it to get up there and forever for it to get it down. And then when it lands, it lands about a day's journey away. And so by the time he gets to it again at night, he just picks it up and, you know, camps for the night and then keeps going. And and on the third day that he did this, when he threw the Fustagon up into the air, when it came down, it smashed into the bronze gates of a great palace. These huge bronze gates. And so he gets there, he sees the bronze gates smashed open, and he's like, don't mind if I do, guess I'm welcome, you know, <laughs> and he walks right in. Yes. And as he goes in, he's going through this like beautiful land and he sees this crystal clear lake. It's a super fancy lake because the sand on the bottom of the mm. lake, which he can see clearly through the clear waters, is gold. It's just pure oh, gold. Fan. Gold sand. I know. So that would be a good place to go mining, but he's not into it. He sees this island made of emerald, like the pure green emerald island with verdant trees and a white marble palace that was so perfect and shiny and polished that it reflected everything around it like a mirror. Okay. He's like, this is beautiful. Clearly, I need to go check this out. And as he's walking along the shore of the lake, he comes to a, a little boat, like the kind that you row across, you know? And it was a golden boat, a boat made of gold that floated gently on the shore. And listen, this is not what gold does. I just need to insert this, like, have we, have we gone mad here? <laughs> gold doesn't float. Have I we gone mad? Gold oh sinks. God, I think that's my favorite comment of yours ever. 
She's like, listen, we've dealt with statues impregnating people. We have dealt with, I don't know, what, what was the other part that was It's not crazy? a statue. It, the icon is not a statue, though. It, it's a, it's like a, it's a painting on wood. Oh, sorry. Okay, okay, okay. That was my mistake. I thought it was more of like... You were thinking of that scene from Dairy Girls. I know it. Oh, yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> Where they think the statue is crying, but really a dog is like peeing on the boards above it. And no, that was so scandalous. Like, oh my god, I think I clutched my pearls. I'm like, okay, okay we're doing this. But they were they I were couldn't. Catholic, not Orthodox. There there are some differences yeah, here. But so. um, but and then she gets to the lake and the gold flow, and she's like, listen. Uh, I can excuse uh, icons getting people pregnant, but I draw the line at gold floating in lakes. <laughs> what is this water is? that gold floats it's on top of it? It's a magic lake. What do you want? <laughs> I guess it is just a magic lake. Anyway, so he hops in the boat, and it still doesn't sink. So great. And then he rows across the lake, and as he approaches, he sees this beautiful palace there getting bigger, and he approaches the marble steps to the palace, and then he walks in, and everything is beautiful and perfect and gilded to... Yeah, just gilded, really. He sees these chandeliers with a hundred arms, and each arm is holding a star of fire, and it's just everything is decadent, decadent, decadent. It's like if you let a 12-year-old bedazzle the whole thing, but instead of, like, rhinestones, you gave them actual gems and gold, and they just, like, went ham, you know? Okay. <laughs> he enters the Great Hall, which is, you know, the place where they have the banquets and the feasts and all of that, and he sees this huge table with a magnificent feast laid out of each food item on the table is made from one giant gemstone like carved from a gemstone so like if you had an apple it might be a giant ruby carved to look like an apple you have a turkey maybe it's like a big ass piece of topaz carved to look like a turkey so each individual food item is a gemstone carved to look like that food item does this mean that you can't eat them i mean this is exactly what i was thinking though like sure it looks cool but what if you're hungry <laughs> yeah did you ever see the never-ending story because all i could think about was this uh giant they had called rock fighter mm. and he ate stones and stuff like that and i was like well this is a feast for him because no one else can eat it i have not seen never-ending story but good god it's not a feast for any of us mm -hmm. our teeth would shatter i was gonna say have you seen those instagram videos of like you know people who collect gemstones and are like some people are experts some people just collect them as a hobby and there's this one person who does videos that are like the most you know gems that they hate because they look so edible and she would show some that look like i don't know bubble gum and some that would look like watermelon and some that would look like lemon candy oh yeah yeah I want to put them in my mouth. A bunch of nobles were sitting in these red velvet chairs, all dressed in gold. And they were all like super, super hot. Like every last one of them was a hottie. Even the ugliest one would still break Instagram with their selfies. How do you know this? Like, did he describe it? Well, he, did, he didn't say the Instagram part. Fair. But everything else, yeah, he's, he did actually say he's that. He's like, they are super hot. You have no idea. Like, this is a thirst trap extraordinaire. They're going to take video of it and post it to their social media to make the rest of us jealous, and it's going to work really well. <laughs> One of the hotties was hotter than the other hotties. He was the hottest hottie to ever hot. Okay. And he had a crown. 
it was this really beautiful, gorgeous crown. And then this is one of my favorite lines in this. <laughs> it's like, and this guy was like so gorgeous and beautiful. And like, you know, he, he could just melt butter by looking at it. But Fatfrumos was hotter. <laughs> it's just this little side note for me. Hi, I'm in Eskul Lake. <laughs> but but Fatfrumos was hotter. <laughs> was hotter. Just so, just, just so there is no confusion here. Uh-huh. Okay? Just so no one tries to start scoring these dudes. The score is already you there. You can't have personal taste come into this. One of them is objectively hotter. hotter than the other. Uh, no, you can have personal taste when it has to do with everyone else. But you need to know who's the hottest uh-huh. here. That's right. Exactly. But like... I, could, I just picture them having this sword fight and it's like constant glamour shots and fan service where like they'll strike a pose and then they get like the, the sparkle effect over it or like, you know, the, the soft glow. Anyway, my, my mind went all over the place with this one. I'm moving on. <laughs> you can talk about how hot dudes for as long as you want to with me. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, the, the guy sees him and he's immediately like, Welcome, Fapfromos. So disguise failed, I guess. <laughs> I've heard about you, but we've never met. <laughs> and Fapfromos is like, It's so good to finally meet you, but let's fight. It, it was kind of this, My name is Anigo Montoyo, you wronged my father, prepared to die moment for Fapfromos. But the other guy was not having it. And he's like, Oh, no, no, it, it, this is all a big misunderstanding. I never did your daddy wrong, you know like I always fought fair and to be honest I don't really want to fight at all I always thought we should be besties and he's like let's just put it behind us we have this party going on come get drunk party with us and we'll be friends and Fafrumos is like yeah actually that does sound like a way better plan <laughs> so he, yeah. he completely immediately gets rid of this plan to, to fight the dude. And he's like, yeah, let's become friends. And so they go and they get friends. absolutely wasted together, right? They're, they're drunk as hell. They're like, you know what we should do? We should become blood brothers. And it's like, yeah, 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 let's become blood brothers. And so they, they make this oath that they're going to be like sworn blood brothers. And they'll always come to their aid. I can just picture this at a bar, though. Like two young dudes drunk out of their gourd being like, dude i love you so much me too dude oh my god and then they start crying yeah they start crying and, and then they they start talking about deep things and the meaning of life and all of that and this guy who is the emperor of this kingdom by the way the neighboring kingdom that his father was previously at war at. this this guy is like uh they're, they're having drunk deep conversations you know and he's like and it never comes up well no no he knew they knew they knew like for almost oh, he was the, okay. that's why he went there he was coming there to fight the dude yeah. because he thought he was his enemy okay okay fine they swore to be blood brothers while they were drunk but they did so knowingly like they were informed they were drunk off their minds but they were informed you know yeah yeah they're having drunk deep conversations and the emperor is like dude who in the world are you most afraid of and Fafrumos is like Nobody scares me except for God. That's the only one. Aww. And the emperor's like, oh, yeah, 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 me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Totally. It's just God. But also this weird old lady in the woods freaks me the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So basically, like, there's this weird old lady living in the woods. and She's scary as hell. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I fear God. But I also fear this old lady. <laughs> How scary was this old lady? What did she do? Damn. 
let me tell you about her because she's an important part of Romanian history. In the story, they refer to her as Mama Pădurilor. Mm-hmm. I think people know her a little bit better as Muma Pădurii, but it's the same thing. She's the same person. She's the mother of the forest. That's what that means. And she's kind of like this forest spirit that takes care of all of the trees and plants and animals. She looks after them. She loves them. But she's not always nice to humans. Like, if you come in and you're good to the woods and to nature, she's chill. She doesn't care. You're, you're good. But if you're bad to it, she's going to be, like, really awful to you in return. She's closely associated with witchcraft. She's supposed to be really good at making potions. And she's a known shapeshifter. She appears very, very ugly. In fact, she's described as so ugly that if you want in modern-day Romania to insult someone, you can be like, dude, you look like Muma Paduri. Damn. And that's a, a big insult. <laughs> I know. I'm going to start using it. You know it's bad when your name can be used as a replacement for the word ugly. I would be very upset, to be honest. I think pretty much anyone would. She seemed chill with it, though. She seemed kind of good with it. She is said to live deep in the woods, usually described as living in the super creepy hut. Okay. If people are being bad to her for, she'll make them go crazy or just scare the shit out of them to get them to leave. She may actively cause them harm as well. She can be malicious, but she's considered more neutral just because if you're not hurting the forest, she usually leaves you alone. So basically, you've usually asked for it if she, if she fights you. Unless you're a kid, she does not really like kids, possibly because they're usually little shits to her forest. She's been known to kidnap them, to enslave them, and to eat them, <laughs> depending on her mood, I guess. Yeah. The emperor is like... She's been bringing this massive storm through the kingdom. A lot of times it sounds like it was a windstorm because it was drying out the land from what he said. But, you know, she could do other types of storms. She's versatile. And the villagers were getting tossed around in the wind and thrown to every corner of the earth. And the towns are getting leveled to the ground. And he's like, she was going to ruin my whole kingdom. So I had to sit down and talk to her and come up and make a deal. And the deal that I made with her is that she would get to take every 10th kid in the kingdom as tribute. So she was going to do, it was going to be like this one-time transaction. They were going to get like one out of every 10 kids, give them to Mumapduri, and she was going to take off and leave the rest of them alone. Which kid would you sacrifice out of your children? I don't have kids. My kids are animals. They would be fine. She loves animals. I guess I could sacrifice my brother. I mean, he's an adult, but I think he counts as a kid. So that's fair. Yeah. I'm not sacrificing my cat. <laughs> I know. That's what I was, I was like. Don't sacrifice your son. Your son is precious. Actually, if he bites me, I might sacrifice him. The emperor's like, actually, she's coming today to pick up all of these kids we've rounded up for. Well, okay. Technically, it was tomorrow because it was going to be the next day. The clock strike midnight, it, meaning it's the next day. And they heard her coming on the wind. She was like, basically old woman screaming into the wind for the hell of it. And they heard it like a long ways off. <laughs> Okay. She's coming, and Fofrumos is like, I'm not having this. I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to let her go eat all these kids or whatever. And so he goes and he grabs her, and he tosses her into what they describe as a felting mill. And I really had to look this up, because the word they use is still used in the, like, mortar and pestle term. What they were talking about is, I'm gathering from the way they describe it, is a kind of big stone trough. And that's the part that he threw her into. Just so this makes a little sense, the way that felt is made is you get the wool from 
you know, the sheep and then you clean it and comb through it and you lay it out all on a flat layer and then you have to like grind and rub it. Like you have to, you, sometimes so people roll a stone over it or put it between two heavy things and kind of shake them. So the fibers get kind of matted permanently together or felted. They, they kind of bond with each other into a, a fabric permanently. And so this stone thing that they're talking about is basically the area where, from what I can tell, it's where you would lay out the cleaned wool and then you would roll a stone over it or something like that to, to try and mat the fibers together. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so it's basically like a big stone trough from what I understand. I tried to find a picture of it, but I was not able to. I found similar troughs for like other types of mills, but not specifically for felting. Mm -hmm. I also don't know what one of these was doing in the middle of a big fancy palace, but you know, whatever. Yeah. He takes her and he throws her on that and he grabs a big rock and he puts it on top of her so she can't get out. And then he chains her with seven chains to this stone trough so she's stuck. And then he's like, okay, that should hold her. Like, that'll take her. Let's go back and party. Like, drunk decision making at its finest, you know? <laughs> at least wait for a little while. Like, see if it takes. You know when you kill a cockroach when you spray it? You need to wait a little while just to see that the fucker doesn't, like, return to life. Exactly. Exactly. And th they really should have because she was not as tightly secured as they thought. He did watch for a second and she couldn't get off out of the chains. But here's the thing. She's a magical being. She doesn't necessarily need to get out of the chains. And in fact, after they'd been partying and drinking some more for a little while, they look out the window and he's like, it looks like two giant hills of water moving away from us. And so everyone goes over to the window to see what the hell is going on. And what they see is... Muma Paduri is running for it and she's running so fast she's running straight across the water of the lake dragging this stone trough behind her this, this stone felting mill and as she's go running across the water she's dragging it across uh, through the water and it's like you know when people do water skiing so when you get going really fast the person in the middle kind of splits the water in, in a like trough and then the water shoots up on either side of the them. As she's running along, she's dragging the trough behind her. She's dragging it through the water like a water skier behind her and the water is just spraying up everywhere. And it was the spraying water off the lake that they noticed. And so they see that. They see her run away and, you know, still dragging this thing behind her and leaving a deep trench in the ground once she hit the ground on the other side behind her everywhere she went as she ran straight into the forest. They see this and they're like, that was mad. Well, party time, like back to partying. <laughs> and they just like forget about it and go back to like drinking and all of that. So again, drunk decision making at its best. <laughs> I'm just still stuck on the fact that he's doing all this drunk. Yeah, Fatfrumos was drunk. All of the party goes were drunk. Yes. So they were like, yeah, yes. the evil forest witch has escaped. Yeah. But, you know, there's still a yeah. prime party going on. So <laughs> they just keep on partying. But, you know, after a while, Fatfrumos is like, you know what? Maybe I should do something about that. So he leaves, he crosses the lake, and then he follows the trail that Muma Paduri left behind her, where she'd been dragging this stone felt mill. 
And he follows it through the woods and, you know, goes in for a while. But eventually he does see that there is this beautiful white house that he's approaching. And first of all, to me, I was like, anytime you say like, oh, a white house in the middle of the woods and we're talking about Romania, I immediately think of like whitewashed houses, which are a very common Romanian tradition. It's this beautiful white house with a gorgeous flowered garden and two barrels of question mark water question mark on the front porch yay i know that water on front porches is in arabic like the arabic culture that i'm familiar with is not a good thing it's associated with black magic mm-hmm. even like puddles randomly on the street you, mm-hmm. you like i've heard people say never step into them because you never know if there's black magic associated with them like not all puddles obviously but sometimes Go with your instincts. That's what I'm going to tell you. Go with your instincts on this one. I will say, though, mm-hmm. that this description stands in stark contrast to what Muma Paduri's house usually is like, which is creepy as hell and dilapidated. But this one is lovely. It's whitewashed. It's whitewashing, by the way. I'm the, People say it so much about, like, films being whitewashed where people of color are replaced with white actors. What it typically actually does mean is it's kind of a, a lime mix. It's not the same as what we think of when we say paint but it's kind of used in the same way but it's this very bright white mix made from lime not like the fruit but like the the stone the stone yes so as he's approaching he sees this beautiful woman dressed in white as well white is a very common theme with long golden braids sitting on the porch spinning wool And I have to note, because there are so many people with blonde hair in the story, the average Romanian has brown hair, (laughs) but there definitely are people who are blonde. It's just kind of more of a minority, you know? It is something that stands out when you see it. She is dressed in white with long golden braids, sitting on the porch, spinning wool. She has what's called a distaff, which is like, it's a long wooden spindle, and you take like the clean but unprocessed wool, and you kind of roll it into a thread and you spin it around this distaff and then later on you'll hook it to a a spinning wheel and you'll feed the rough approximate threads that you've made onto this distaff through the spinning wheel and it will tighten it up to make a a proper thread like a really tightly bound thread and that is the rough process of spinning there's a lot more to it but that's the basics welcome to our episode on textiles Yes. So she's she's spinning wool into, onto this distaff, and she sees him, and she says, Welcome, Fafrumos. And I'm like, does he wear a sign on his fucking forehead? Like, how does everyone immediately know who this man is when he approaches? But she goes, Okay, I dreamt of you a while back. While I was spinning thread, I was weaving a dream of how we would... She's like, we were going to do the no pants dance. That's not the phrase he used, but she basically said, like, I dreamt of us making love. And it would be so... so Oh, good. (laughs) Mm. I'm making this wool spindle to make you a coat. And with my dreams, I'll make you a happy life that the two of us can share for the rest of our lives. So it was not a subtle introduction. If you met a random guy and he said something like that to you, what would your reaction be? Depends on how hot the guy is. Okay, let's say he's super, super hot. And he says, I had a dream of you before I met you. And Mm. we did the no pants dance and it was amazing. Well... Most likely not, because I have listened to too much true crime, and I would be like, oh, okay, he's probably going to skin me. And he never really said if he was doing the naked dance with me, dead or alive, so... 
I'm going to have to pass up on this opportunity. We've considered your application and decided to pass on this opportunity. <laughs> Move on with a different... <laughs> We're considering other candidates this time. That's right. <laughs> but the only other candidate you're considering is Henry Cavill, and I know it. <laughs> yeah, the problem is the candidate is not considering me, so... <laughs> that is true. <laughs> We're not considering that candidate, yeah. She gets all coy all of a sudden. Like, she says this incredibly forward thing, like, I dreamt of us making love, and now I'm sowing a future for the rest of our lives, and all of that. And then she is shy all of a sudden, and she couldn't, like, she couldn't believe what she just said. And she dropped her stuff and it fell to the floor and she was just like oh my I would have called her ass out like don't act shy now woman you know what you did I was gonna say I know you would do that <laughs> call her out I know you would do that in real life and you'd be like yeah exactly you would like roast her. oh I, I'd be like don't act shy now no one's no one's buying no it. one's especially not me but fuck for most did fuck for most absolutely bought it he pulls her close and he gently caresses her hair and is like you are the hottest woman I have ever beheld and whose whose daughter are you beautiful and she's like oh I'm the daughter of Muma Paduri Will you still love me even though my mom eats babies? And he said yes. Asterix puts arms around his neck, bats eyes slowly. <laughs> I need, I need to make a doodle of this. Like that's gonna be our promotional material. Their interaction had me rolling. Like I could not. It was the funniest thing ever. <laughs> no, the hilarious part. Like just wraps his eye, like caresses her in her arms. So I'm still in that okay, 1800s writing style. Mm-hmm. You are the hottest chick I've ever seen. And I'm like, oh, girl. <laughs> she like completely snatches me out of it. <laughs> okay, so that was not a direct quote, but essentially. <laughs> if Eminescu had known the term hot chick, I'm sure he would have used it. He used a more colloquial way of writing. Okay, okay. <laughs> but for most is like, I wrote something dumb here, but I'm going to read it anyway. But for most, literally, colon, I don't care who you are, where are you from, what you did, as long as you love me. Wow. I don't know that song. Yeah, I knew you weren't going to know it. I'm sorry. But you'll get this next one. And if you don't, I'm going to mock you. Okay. She, Asterix, leans head on chest, <laughs> basically says, It's a beautiful night. We're looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I want to marry you. <laughs> You're allowed to mock me because I've heard the lyrics, but I don't know the song. That's Bruno Mars. It's on Instagram. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. But anyway, she's like, but also my mom will kill you if she finds out. And if you died, I'd totally die too. Is that from the song? Or I am no, so... No, no, it's no. Not the the, the eating babies part was her. That was what she said. Like, no, I mean, she doesn't eat babies. Her mom eats babies. But, you know, she's like, if my mom finds you, my baby eating mom, she's going to kill you. And then I would die because like... Oh my gosh, I would die. I had to make this part a little silly because what they were actually saying was so cringy that I was I, I was half struggling to get through it. <laughs> you had to like, you know, present it to us in a way where we wouldn't all collectively die of the cringe. Exactly. This is a life-saving measure that I am employing to protect the rest of you from the cringe. She cares about us, guys. I do. I do. I care a great deal. So Fofunmos is like, yeah, listen, don't worry about it. Where's your mom now, though? <laughs> Their daughter is like, she's behind the house trying to... <laughs> this was another part that had me rolling. She's like, she she went behind the house and she's trying to gnaw through the chains that you used to chain her to the felting mill. <laughs> My guy. <laughs> In-laws, am I right? <laughs> let me just... 
I'll be right back, sweetheart. Let me just like grab a pack of condoms and chain your mom to the fence. Dude. He keeps his mother-in-law outside chained to the fence. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Anyway, and he's like, cool, cool. I got it. And he starts to head around back and she's like wait 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 hold on let me tell you how to beat her because like i just met you and you're really hot and that relationship is more important to me than the one i've had with my mother for years so this reminds me of the gypsy rose case you remember that gypsy rose blank yes no that one i i know everyone knows about yeah, that yeah. Case. it was very unfortunate it was very unfortunate for all parties involved It was. So she's like, let me tell you how to beat her. So these two barrels in front of the house, one of them just has normal water, but one of them is filled with strength, like the embodiment of strength. And she drinks strength when she's fighting her enemies. She drinks the strength and has them drink from the other bucket and they get water. So she gets stronger the more water they drink and they just stay the same. And so when she's in the middle of the fight, she's going to say like, stop, let's get a drink. And then she'll drink strength and pound you into the earth. Wait, that sounds wrong. And then she'll like kill you. (laughs) I'm sorry. I love it. And then, wait, no. (laughs) So they do the natural thing and they switch the barrels. He then goes behind the house and in that exact moment, Muma Puduri manages to break free from the chains and she's like, ha ha, I'm free. And she stretches herself really tall up to the clouds, does a little victory dance, then shrinks down to her normal size. And then she notices that he's there and she's like, welcome, Fatfurmos. Let's fight to see who is stronger. And Fatfurmos is like, it's on. So she grabs him and she stretches herself up to the clouds. And then she just chucks him at the ground and he goes and gets buried up to his ankles. And he's like, fuck that. So he punches her and she goes sliding back at, you know, like in anime fights when someone punches someone and they like just slide on their shoes in the dirt and it's like sliding back. She does that, and his punch is so powerful that she ends up buried up to her knees. So this has officially become an anime fight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Do people start flying and, you know, retelling their backstories in the middle of punching each other? Does each punch take three episodes? Possibly. Yeah, and then they name them, too, and he's like, heaven power fist punch. Boom. She slides. Heaven power fist punch. She slides and ends up buried in, up to her knees. And yeah. Anime foot. Anime foot. Muma Padori then realizes that she might be a little fucked. And so she's like, you know, wait, 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 stop. Let's go and get a drink of water. And Fatformos is like, I'm down with that. So because they switched the barrel, she just drinks normal water, but he drinks from the bucket of strength. And the strength enters into his body and into every sinew. And he feels himself like powering up like Mario after he just ate a mushroom. And, you know, it, but not getting bigger, mind you. Just getting more powerful. <laughs> getting bigger where it matters. No, you're thinking of Viagra. I'm, I'm, I, I was not, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the bucket of Viagra. Dude, come on. If a dude writes bucket of strength, what do you think they mean? It's not that kind of strength, I promise, guys. I promise. So anyway, they go back to fighting. He grabs her by the waist and he chucks her to the ground. And then slight gore warning here. He takes his buzdugan, his mace, and he smacks her in the head with it. And her braids go, her brains go all over the place. End of gore warning. That was it. (laughs) Okay. Blah. 
<laughs> splat. And as soon as she dies, the dark clouds roll in. It begins to thunder. The sky is splitting. The wind picks up and all sorts of stormy nonsense is happening. And he immediately knows like, oh, this is going to be a bad one. So he starts going around to meet the girl and she meets him halfway too. And he sees her like a pale figure through the dark wind, looking frazzled and scared. And he picks her up and he starts to run through the forest with her. And as he runs, she passes out in his arms. She looks like death. He can't wake her. But he's also running, so he doesn't have much of an opportunity to try. <laughs> and he kisses her eyes to try and wake her up. And it's like, this is a lot. Tone it down, you guys. Tone it down. This is not junior high romance. <laughs> Fern is just there watching them kiss, making comments. The romance scenes are so... I feel so bad saying that, but the romance scenes are so cheesy. The fierce storm is really coming down now. They're getting drenched in the rain. He's still carrying her. She's still passed out. And he finally, finally comes to the lake, takes her across on the little boat and brings her into the emperor's garden. <laughs> and he picked this. This is the dumb. I got so mad at this part. So they're in the emperor's garden, right? Yes. Do they go inside the palace? No. no. What does oh. he do? This is what he does. He goes and he picks hay and sweet grass and he builds a little nest for them and he lays her oh. down, this unconscious woman, in a nest and snuggles with her in the storm throughout the night. It's like you're in the, if you're in the fucking palace garden, why do you not just go into the palace? Like That's, and there's a storm it, outside. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I get palace gardens can be very big, Pneumonia. but are they so big that it's it's better to just, like, stay outside in the middle of a torrential downpour with, like, magical storm nonsense happening and not just, like, walk however long it is to the palace? Like, come on. I don't know. Like, maybe I feel like... Eminescu was like, it would be so romantic if they just huddled in these sweet grasses through this storm and were soaking wet, but they had each other, even though she's like not conscious, and they just huddle and get through this terrible night and then go to the palace in the morning. But you know what's romantic? Being able to take a warm bath and snuggle in a cozy bed and not like be drenching wet in hay in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's romantic. <laughs> That's fair. I don't consider building nests in gardens romantic because I all I can keep thinking of is okay, number one, the storm and pneumonia. Number two, the bugs. Mm -hmm. Number three, the mud. Number four, did any of them take a bath before the snuggling? No, I mean, literally pick any of them. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And if you also add on to that, like, she's literally unconscious at this moment. So, like, maybe we should look into that. Like, maybe it's worth it to take the long walk back to the palace, even if the garden is huge, to, like, maybe see a doctor about that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't know. Maybe I'm picky. <laughs> you know, maybe, yeah, maybe we're just too picky. Maybe people can do that stuff everywhere, so. Yeah, anyway, the Sun rises, and it, there's this whole scene where Fofromos is just looking at her like, damn, she's so hot. And I'm like, okay, keep it in your pants, guy. Like, calm down. <laughs> but she still won't wake up. So he starts to play his flute, and he kisses her, and it enters her dreams and pulls her back into consciousness, and she wakes up. Then they walk through the garden to the palace, which again, why did you not do that last night, my guy? <laughs> and what they go through the palace doors, he goes up to the emperor and he's like, hey, check it out. I got a fiance now. Oh. And the emperor goes into tortured protagonist mode. And he's like, I'm so happy for you. But his eyes are sad. And he takes <laughs> Fapromos by the hand. 
<laughs> and he and he leads him back to the shore of the lake and he looks like he wants to say something but he doesn't say anything he just stands there like a tortured soul and Fafrimos is like dude is everything okay I can tell you want to talk but you're just like staring at the swan and it, it, it feels, feels weird, weird. <laughs> yes but we're not going to get into what the prince said today because that is going to be part two. Because the prince is, or the emperor, sorry, the emperor is going to unlock a new side quest that is going to take a while to work out. So we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Part two is extra wild extra sassy the cliffhanger the absolute cliffhanger yes it's an absolute cliffhanger there's a special guest arrival by someone that you will not see coming i promise well i see them coming no but let me tell you this everyone has heard of this person but you're still not going to see it coming <laughs> Yes. <laughs> anyway, so we'll go ahead and stop there. Pick up tar- part two for next week. Uh, yeah, any final thoughts before we close up, Crow? No, not really. That was, I think, the wildest story you have told so far. It gets wilder. Oh my God. I'm not ready for it. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave you with that. A little something to look forward to. In the meantime, Crow, where can they find us? Okay, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a follow. We're available on Apple Music. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you really enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review because we would love to hear what you think. Also, check out our social media. We have an Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and a Gmail if you want to tell us about the crazy happenings in your life. But until then, this is Crow and this is Fern signing off. Bye!